Good morning. It's good to be back with you guys. Uh, so what Mark was trying to communicate uh, is that my wife's grandfather had his knee replaced recently, and he has a large garden that's bordering on farm and needed a lot of help with the crops. So she took our youngest, Wendell, and she's been down there. And this is day six of us being apart. It's the longest in our almost nine years of marriage that we've been apart. I've had the two younger boys, and uh, recently, and I've tried every day to have like one very physically taxing thing to do with them, you know? Uh, like, no matter what happens, you're going to be exhausted at the end of the day. That's the plan. Um, and George recently, he was sitting at the table, just eating a snack, looking off thoughtfully. He's like, Dad, remember when I was excited about having Dad Week, just us and, 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 and you? And I'm like, I'm like, whatever comes next could destroy me, you know? Um, yes. He's like, it's been pretty fun. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. Uh, all right. But uh, yeah, it's been fun. I got to come up and hang out with Mark a little bit yesterday. That is actually the second time I've seen him floss on stage, which is the little dance move. Really embarrassing for him, I think. <laughs> So anyway, uh, all right, so we are in Mark 14 this morning. Uh, I've chosen this passage. Uh, the last time I was with you guys, I had two weeks that were close together and did a little mini-series on James. This is just a small story that I don't think gets a lot of attention and is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. And not only that, but it's one of the greatest characters in the Gospels, I think, and she does not get enough attention. Um, I think if you look through the whole biblical story, and the Gospels in particular, and you say, who was very faithful, and who was just locked in the whole time? It's Mary. She shows up everybody in the Gospels. She's amazing. Uh, and so I wanted to meditate on her this morning. Uh, to do that, I need to set the stage quickly. So Mark 14, where we're going to be hanging out, uh, at this point in the biblical story, things are about to get really bad. And Mark 14, if you look at it and just kind of glance your eyes across the page, a lot of really important big stuff happens. Judas betrays Jesus. There's the Passover, the Lord's Supper. Peter denies Jesus. Peter prays in Gethsemane. He's betrayed. He's arrested. I mean, this is all very huge stuff. And tucked into this chapter at the beginning is this little weird moment with Mary that's really beautiful and I want to look at. Now, we are at this point in the story, we're about to see the full scope of man's antagonism towards God. And if we know the biblical story, at the beginning, God makes Adam and Eve. He sets them up as stewards. They're supposed to image God. It actually says in, uh, in the Old Testament that we're not supposed to make images of God. And the reason is because we, people, are the images of God. The point is you're supposed to look at, you want to know what God is like? Find the best people you know, the people who love or self-sacrificial. They are the image of God. And God makes people and sets them up in Eden, and we are supposed to carry out his mission throughout the earth. But of course, we have this choice. We can either do it by submitting to God or do it our own way, and we choose our own way. And so the story of the whole Bible really is God consistently reaching out to people and people consistently proving that we hate the idea of submitting to God. We hate the idea that there's an authority greater than us that we must answer to. And so finally, God sends Jesus, the Son of God, shows up as a man. And you would think this would be the place, like he would have had any, every right to abandon us. 
uh, with the way that we had treated God, the way we had treated his planet, the way we had treated each other. And he sends Jesus, and instead of going, oh, yes, the connection between God will be remade, everything is new, we kill him. We love self-rule, we refuse to accept God, and we kill Jesus. But before all that happens, before Jesus goes to the cross to die, before we see just how strong our hatred is of the idea of submitting to God, Jesus takes this brief little reprieve. He's in the house of Simon the leper, uh, and his other company, as we see in the Gospel of John, this account shows up in a lot of different Gospels. His other, uh, the other people there are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So to set the scene a little bit, Lazarus, as you may know, is the one who died and was resurrected by Jesus. And he's a really big deal in the Christian story. If you're reading through the Gospels, it will occasionally name drop. It'll say something like, so-and-so saw this. And the reason it does this, and without any explanation, it'll say, like, you know, Joe witnessed this and then leave it. The reason it does this is because it actually, the Gospel writers want people to go ask those people. It's referring to real people. It's saying, like, Joe saw this. Go talk to Joe. He was there. He'll tell you about it. And Lazarus is the, one of the biggest linchpins for Christianity's growth because he has this really public moment. Jesus resurrects him. The story flies like crazy. And people are constantly coming to the town and being like, hey, I heard that. Were you there? Did this guy really get resurrected? They're like, yeah, let me tell you about it. It was crazy. I saw it. And Christianity's just pew, flying because of this, so much so the Pharisees want to kill Lazarus. Like, this guy needs to die. So at this table, we have Lazarus, and we have his two sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus, before he goes onto this unbelievable gauntlet, is resting with these people. And it's at this moment that we hit this passage. So uh, Mark 14, I'm actually going to start at verse 3. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman, which the other gospels reveal is Mary, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let's pray together that God would bless our time in his word. Father, thank you for who you are. I thank you for this story. I thank you for Mary. I thank you for pictures of people who loved you and served you, pictures of people that we can follow. Please bless our time here, soften our hearts, that we may hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So Lily's going to throw something at me because I do this all the time. But my favorite thing as a teacher is I love hypotheticals. Hypotheticals like you're on an island and you can only have three items. What are your three items, you know? And so I'm always looking for hypotheticals to share with my students to the point where by the end of the year, they're basically asking me for a new one every day, which is a lot of fun. I make up a lot of them. Some of them stick, some of them don't. But my favorite hypothetical comes from Chuck Klosterman, which I will share with you now. All right. This is not in the Bible. This is a hypothetical. <laughs> okay. There is a crystal ball. 
And if you look in the crystal ball, you'll see the future, 10 years in the future. And whatever you see will happen no matter what, okay? You can't avoid your fate. Could be a big moment. Could be like you're getting married or something or you're retiring. Could be you're just sitting on your sofa, all right? Everybody got it? You got the context of this? All right. You decide to look into the crystal ball. You look in. You see yourself. You are seated on your sofa. You are watching a Canadian Football League football game. You are wearing a Canadian Football League jersey. Your poster, Canadian Football League posters. You have Canadian Football League preseason magazines sitting around. As you're watching, you are muttering about great moments in Canadian football. You, it is clear that 10 years from now, somehow, you will become completely obsessed with Canadian Football League football. And not only that, but as you watch yourself, you're really happy. You're just blown away by this experience of watching Canadian football. The next day, you're flipping through cable. You land on a preseason Canadian Football League game between the Saskatchewan Rough Riders and the Edmonton Eskimos. Do you now watch this game? Turn to somebody and answer that question. Do you now watch the Canadian Football League game, knowing you will eventually become totally sold out to Canadian Football League football? Go. I'm serious. Turn to a partner and talk about it. All right, all right, bring it back. And that's a wrap, amen, let's go. No, uh, okay. Now, part of the humor of this, I've actually shared that um, hypothetical before with a group of people who I did not know were actually very serious Canadian Football League fans, and that doesn't work with them, because part of the joke is nobody watches Canadian Football League, well, I thought, nobody watches Canadian football. It's a step below, you know, any other kind of football, I suspect. And on top of that, uh, as Americans, the idea that you will become totally zealous and sold out for something is a little frightening. You just don't want to be that person, you know? Like, man, every time I talk to Andrew, he's talking about Canadian football. What is up with that guy? You don't want to be that person. We're a little suspicious of zeal. Uh, when, we, when you watch the news or whatever, we want the objective person. We don't want somebody who is kind of inside. We don't want somebody who's zealous for anything. Um, and on, if we're honest, when you meet truly passionate and zealous people, it, it can sometimes alarm us. And if they're really zealous or passionate about things that we're, we feel very personal about, like the way we eat or the way you exercise or something like that, I think there's more friction there. Um, my, uh, one of the things that's funny about my parents and myself, they're going to show up a few times in this message. Uh, I'm a pretty idealistic guy, and I've had periods of my life where I've made very hardcore decisions. And my parents and I always have this funny thing about, like, when we do something really hardcore, we feel like it's an affront, like a judgment on the other person's way of living, you know? So when I come home to my parents, and I'm like, I'm no longer doing this thing that you guys have done with me forever, you know? They viewed it as, well, he's judging us. And I think sometimes we feel that way when we're around really zealous people as well, because implicitly it's like, well, should I be living that way? Should I be eating that way? Should I be exercising that way? And this applies to Christianity as well. Uh, I have... One of my best friends, Tom Hart. <clears throat> Tom Hart, who's from Albany, Georgia, A-L-B-A-N-Y, Georgia, or as he says it, Albany. Um, he's a Georgian. He'd allow me to say that. Tom Hart, uh, he's an RUF pastor, campus pastor, and he was not a Christian, went to college, and he falls in with this group of really strong Christians. And he, he becomes a Christian. He decides Jesus is the real deal. 
And at this point, he's dating a girl that he realizes their ideals are very separate, very different. He breaks up with her. She slaps him, calls his parents, and says he's joined a cult. Okay? <laughs> he hadn't joined a cult. Uh, and I think with Christianity, we're afraid sometimes that if we really dive in on Christianity and we look in the crystal ball t- 10 years down the road, we'll be doing crazy things. And we're a little uncomfortable about it. You know? Our girlfriends will be slapping us and calling our parents. Um, we're afraid of what Christianity might do to us. If I become a Christian, or if I really start following Christ, will I recognize myself in 10 years? Will I start making weird decisions? Will I give up things that I love? Will I be less comfortable? Sometimes if we're honest, even as Christians, we don't necessarily want to hear the story about this great uh, ministry that's going on, or adoption, or the missionary, or all those kinds of things, because we're afraid, is that, should that be me? Should I be doing that as well? And I'm not going to lie to you, Christianity is very all or nothing. You can't really extract parts of it. It's Jesus or bust. But I want to say that the linchpin here, zeal for its own sake is bad and scary. But when it's attached to Jesus, when Jesus is the focal point, it transforms it into something beautiful. Uh, And so sometimes as Christians, we can do things that look like we have unreasonable faith. But I'd say if it's anchored toward Christ, this zeal is not something to run from, but run towards. And I want to look at somebody who did that with Mary. So I have three points for us today, uh, an unreasonable faith, a reasonable reaction, and then a final judgment. So an unreasonable faith. So in verse 3, it just throws us right in there. A lot of ands. Uh, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, this is Jesus, as he was reclining at table, a woman... Mary came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. Now, before we get to her action, let's think about Mary and who she is. Excuse me. I had us read earlier a passage the first time we are introduced to Mary. She's hanging out with Martha, and Jesus has come, and Jesus is teaching. And we see that what it says is that uh, a woman named Martha welcomed Jesus into her house, And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. The first time we see Mary, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She's listening to his teaching. Now, this would have been pretty radical because most people would say the only people who sit at the feet of this great teacher would be men. And so Mary herself comes and just sits in this place. And you can imagine the room got kind of quiet when Mary did this. And they're all waiting for the rebuke from Jesus to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's for the disciples, not you. And it's really awkward. And finally, Martha can't take it anymore and says, you know, tell her to help me out. Why is she just sitting there? She should be doing what I'm doing. I'm I'm serving. I'm making sure this event runs. Tell her to get up. And the Bible says Martha was distracted with much serving. And Jesus says to her, Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. She takes this unbelievable risk. She sits at the feet of Jesus. Jesus has this chance to rebuke her. Instead, he's like, she's doing exactly what I want her to be doing. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him. So the, who is Mary? Mary is the one who sits at the feet of Jesus and listen, listens to what he has to say. And I don't think she does this action that we see unless she's that person. 
I think the listening and this action are, are perfectly intertwined. The woman who anoints Jesus' feet is the same one who'd been sitting at his feet. Now, she's been hearing Jesus if she's been listening to him. Jesus has been predicting his death for a while. He's predicting it all the time. And the disciples just refuse to hear it. He's constantly, very clearly, I'm going to die. I'm just letting you know I'm going to die. And they're like, ah, what are you talking about? Quit being pessimistic, you know? They're like, get that negativity out of here, you know? Uh, And constantly, he's saying that. And nobody believes him. They're like, we saw you resurrect a guy. You can, like, reproduce bread. Nobody's killing you. You're going to go destroy the bad guys. We're going to win. Victory is ours, right? And Mary is the only one, as he's saying this, it seems to sink down into her heart. She believes him. She understands what's going on. She also probably knows that if he's going to go die a criminal's death, he will not receive, his body will not be blessed with ointment before he dies. His body will undergo a criminal's burial. And so she's been hearing this and thinking, how can I honor this king who's about to go to the cross for me? How can I honor this king who's about to die for me? And this ointment that she comes in with, what we'll find out, is worth a year's wages. This is a big deal. This is not just like she's like looking around like, oh, yeah. This thing is sitting on the shelf, and it's the thing that the family probably looks to frequently to say, you know what? When times get hard, at least we have this, this ointment. There's always money in the banana stand. We always have something that we can go to, Right? And so when she comes in with that ointment, and everybody knows the cost of it and what it's worth, I imagine the room went silent. Like, Whoa, what's going on? What's about to happen? And I don't think this is an impulsive action. I don't think Mary is, we're praising one personality type over another. I don't think this, sometimes I've heard Mary Martha preach that way, like Mary's personality versus Martha's. I don't think there are personalities more inclined towards the gospel than others. I think Mary is making a very intentional decision. She's decided that Jesus needs to be blessed. What is the way I can do it? Within my resources, what's the best way I can do it? This is it. And I could just conjecture, but I've always wondered, did she talk to Martha and Lazarus before she did it, or did she just do it? Irregardless, I imagine that their reaction, Lazarus, who's been resurrected by Jesus, is sitting there, and she comes in with this ointment and breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. And I imagine his heart was like, yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. That's what is due, Jesus. Thank you so much for doing that for our family. Uh, as, as Charles Spurgeon put it, principle trumps passion. I don't think this is a moment of impulsivity. I think this is a moment of principle. She serves Christ. She has a chance to serve him, and she does it. The other thing is it's driven by gratitude, what would make this the worst moment possible would be as if Jesus had, like, manipulated it to happen or said something passive-aggressive. If Jesus had been sitting there and he was like, you know what I would kill for right now is just an ointment, years worth of wages dumped all over my head. That would make this moment super special, you know, and everybody's like, oh, my gosh, okay, do it. Um, that would be the worst. This would be an awful story. Nobody would like it, right? Uh, Jesus doesn't command her to do this. It's a free gift that she gives him. And it's motivated by gratitude. It's what makes the gift so beautiful, I think. Zeal motivated by anything apart from gratitude, I do not think works. I think it's cold and ugly. 
Some of us here, myself included, have tried to be zealous for things apart from gratitude, and I think it goes to dark places. I think a real quick look is to look at the political world. I think when we're motivated by things and we're not driven by a joy at what we've been given by Christ, it quickly turns ugly. That's a scary kind of zeal. But this zeal is motivated by a king who loves her very deeply. The last thing about it is it's really costly. She's giving up a future security. She's, she's breaking kind of her retirement and pouring it at the feet of Jesus. She's saying, you are my true security, not this. The safest place I can be is at your feet. And in an amazing, amazing thing here, uh, she is, in a way, fulfilling Psalm 23. She is acting for God to minister to his son. This is kind of mind-blowing. I mean, listen to Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Judas is sitting at the table. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. She is like the hands of God towards Jesus right now. And I think Jesus probably saw that as it was happening. My father is ministering to me right now through this woman. In gratitude for the past, she poured her future and her security on Jesus. No wonder he describes her actions as beautiful. Well, uh, I brought in a prop as an illustration. This is going to be my last. I've realized now that I've used like three music examples with you guys. I do have other things I think about. I don't know why they work so well. Anyway, I stole this record from uh, Mark's house while I was over there. Uh, So this is a vinyl. Uh, In a weird twist of fate, vinyl has come back really hard. The first time I bought a vinyl, my dad was like, you know those sound terrible, right? I threw them away. CDs were really good. Anyway, um, so I'm kind of fascinated with vinyl and what it does. Uh, If you take a vinyl record and you put it on the record player and you turn off the speakers, you'll still hear some of the music because it's mechanical, not electric, right? So the way they imprint the music on here, so uh, I think Edison was the first one who does it. He doesn't do it on a vinyl. He did it on a cylinder. Is these sound waves come into this thing that literally etches these little grooves into the record, etches the actual sounds. And if you took the line of sound on one of these things and unwound it, I think it's seven football fields long of stuff is on this one record. And when you play it back, when you put the needle on it and it runs on the groove, it plays the sound that's literally been etched, written into here. And I, I've heard that there are people who know certain types of classical music so well that they can look at the record and tell you what piece of music it is. They can go like, oh, this is uh, Gershwin Rhapsody in Blue because look, here's the dynamics get larger here and all this kind of thing. Well, Mary, uh, Mary is someone who has been sitting at the feet of Jesus. She has received the pressing of the master, Right? She has received those sound waves. They have etched into her life. And when you put the record on for Mary, it's full of anxiety and sin, I'm sure. It has scratches. It has pops. But the overall sound is one of devotion towards the king. The overall song that comes out is one that is focused on Christ. Her life is one of premeditated, lifelong service. She has given up her future security and put it on Christ. This is a dangerous thing to preach unless it's true right? This is a dangerous thing to say. I'm praising someone who gave up a lot of their security for Christ, unless it's true that Jesus is actually our truest security. Spurgeon puts it this way, let each man resolve in his heart, man or woman, I will not offer my Lord the hasty fruit of impulse or that which shall cost me nothing 
but I will consider what I can do for him. Of what will there be a need? In what direction can I do him homage where otherwise he might lack that honor? I will turn it over and meditate and consider, and then I will perform. The funny thing about vinyl records is when they first came out, the most they could hold was about four, four and a half minutes, the 45s and 78s, I think. And music changed. Suddenly, songs became four and a half minutes long. That's like a pop song now. And it still lasts, even though we're out of vinyl. When you listen to a song, you expect it to be about three to five minutes long. That's because of the vinyl record. There are limitations on that vinyl. There are limitations on our lives. There's limitations on what Mary could do. She couldn't do everything. But based on what she had in her home, what she had in her life, that is what she poured out to Jesus. And I think that's the call to each one of us, is to consider what is like the mission of our lives? What is the mission of our families? What's the financial mission? What will we have given the most to when it's all said and done? What will we have spent our personal gifts on when it's all said and done? Andy Crouch makes the argument that you should uh, make a, a family mission statement, and whether you're single or, or whatever, make a mission statement and put it up on the wall, uh, something like my wife and I have been working on ours. Like the Barber family is a group of believers who yada, yada, yada. And it's this way to say, this is what our principle is. This is what we are devoted towards. We're not going to live impulsively. We're going to live directed towards this, focused, looking for opportunities. And that's what Mary is like. So that's my charge to you as well. I think it's an interesting challenge, an interesting task, and raises some really great questions um, with your family and with, bring, yeah, bring it to somebody. Talk, what is your mission? Uh, what are you good at? What, what has God called you towards? What is the place that you have access to that no one else does? The place where, like, Jesus isn't praised here, and I have access to there. I could bring his song there. What does that look like? Well, going back to our story, we now get a reasonable reaction. So can you imagine this moment? Mary walks in. She has this ointment. She breaks it. She pours it over his head. Shock in the room. Just stunned. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, when you see something that feels a little too intimate and you're like, don't know what to do with it, and you're looking for some kind of narrative to, this is really uncomfortable. Can we figure out how to frame this or whatever? This makes us uncomfortable. Um, probably the disciples are a little uncomfortable, like, wait, should I be doing that? Um, and the scriptures tell us, and we later learn in John that this was Judas who says this, why was this ointment wasted like that? That ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they scolded her. So Judas says this, and I can imagine the disciples when he's like, hey, whoa, whoa, we could have given that to the poor. What are you doing? They're all like, yeah, yes, that's why I'm uncomfortable at this moment. Oh, he's right. This was a dumb move. You should have at least talked to us before you did that. You just dumped out all this money on the floor. What are you doing? Well, I think there are two levels of folly here, the disciples and then Judas's, which is a whole other animal. But let's just start with the disciples. I mean, the disciples are essentially saying, as she's dumping out this on Jesus, is they're like, this is too much to give to Jesus. It's too much. You have to have some kind of balance in your life, and you have crossed the line. And this is why it's important that I don't think she's impulsive. Because if she's impulsive, they might have a chance to rebuke her. I don't think she is. I think this is planned. And they're like, ah, too much. These guys are good guys. They're good disciples. But at this point, they're saying they value their service and their goodness and all that more than Jesus. They value those things more than Jesus. A pretty good test of the heart. 
Sinclair Ferguson once said this, if someone gives everything to God more than you think is okay, like what's your response? If your kid comes, and I'm not talking about, I've, uh, I've worked a lot with younger people, and I know there are times where like the 16-year-old shows up and is like, I've decided to go be a missionary forever in this place, and you know it's just like that month they've made this decision. Um, that's not what I'm talking about, but if your kid shows up and says, I've considered this for a long time, and I really think God is calling me to this really hard, difficult place, and it's going to need wisdom, but I want to do it, do you, mm, that's too much to give to Jesus. That's too much. This Jesus isn't quite giving that much, worth giving that much love towards. It's interesting that when Jesus meets with Peter after Peter betrays him, he doesn't say, do you believe me? He says, do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus never asked, like, do you believe in me? It's, do you love me? I've said before, there isn't really like a reasonable version of Christianity. It's Jesus or nothing. I once heard somebody say something to the effect of, well, if Christianity isn't true, at least I'm living a moral life. You know, that's good. You know what Paul has to say about that? He says, if Jesus isn't raised from the dead, eat and drink because tomorrow you die. If he didn't raise from the dead, you are wasting your time. If Jesus isn't who he says he is, this is, this is rubbish. We should go do something else. I can't guarantee you tomorrow. I don't know how long you'll live. Go have fun. If this is you, and this is me a lot, I struggle with this. I'm, like, I'm honestly not sure Jesus is worth that level of love. I have a few things to say. One is, we've got to find a way to get to the goodness of the gospel. The gospel is really good. Jesus is really good. That's the only thing that would motivate us towards doing those kind of things. The other thing I would say is, these disciples who are rebuking her and scolding her and trying to mansplain the situation... They're the ones who very soon after, they're going to be sitting around the table and Jesus is going to say, one of you guys is going to betray me and all of them are going to say, is it me? They're going to begin to realize that they, they don't live up. And from there, 11 out of 12 of them are going to die for Jesus and another one's going to be exiled. They're going to be transformed. They're going to come to understand what was going on with Jesus in that moment and it's going to transform their lives. So what I would say is, find a way to the goodness of the gospel. Know we have a patient and good king who loves you. And know that the Bible is full of people who've been transformed, who started, thankfully, from a position of, is it I, who understood their weakness, and Jesus calls them to himself. Well, there's another level here, and that's Judas, and this is just outright antagonism. Uh, John 12.4 tells us that he's actually been taking the money and skimming some off the top. He's been stealing some of the money. Uh, I'm not sure when he started doing this, but at some point, Judas decides, Jesus isn't enough. I need something on top. He's literally saying, Jesus isn't the way to security, only money. And so when she walks in the room, he's the one who's immediately doing the math on how much that ointment is worth. And when she breaks it and pours it out, it's like a direct rebuke. He's like, whoa, that's no, that's my security. That's the best thing we have. Money is it. And she's dumping it out on Jesus. And he's like, this is a waste and this seems to push him over the top. When Jesus says that she's done, he, she has done the right thing, the very next passage in Mark 14.10 says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. He immediately after this moment leaves, goes to the chief priests and says, like, I want to betray him. And they're like, well, what do you want? And he's like, I'd like money. And they're like, oh, money? We have tons of money. 
We, people come all over to give money to God in the temple. We've got this giant thing. We'll pay for it for Jesus' life. You think money gives you security? Have as much as you want. So Judas is this man who's trading beautiful things for things that are meaningless. He's looking for security in the wrong place. Uh, I had this realization recently. My dad is a great Spanish teacher. He teaches at um, a public school in South Carolina. I teach at the Stony Brook School. And you know, when you're, when you're a Christian uh, teaching at a school that is openly evangelical and proclaims that Jesus is Lord and all that, you know that you're always standing mildly on tenuous ground. Uh, what I mean is you're aware that the culture could shift at any moment and decide that there's no space for something like that. And I realized that in my head, even though I feel very called by God to be there, I have a pretty amazing story about how I ended up at that place, and uh, I feel personally like God wants me there. I realized that I, I had been thinking that my dad was more secure at his job because his depended on the state. And it just suddenly hit me. like I think the state of South Carolina is more dependable than my God is. I think of my dad, and I think I kind of envy, like, hmm, yeah, man, he's in a job. He knows it'll be in year in, year out. I never know, you know, what'll, what'll happen uh, with the Christians in, Christians in America. Amazing. I'm in my head trading beautiful things for things that are meaningless. I'm looking for my security someplace other than God. I need something a little extra. I need something a little on the top, like Judas. I think we all have that inclination in our hearts and I think like the disciples, the place to go is to say, Jesus, I, I see my weakness. Is it I? I'm the kind of person who betrays you. I trade beautiful things all the time for things that are meaningless. Show me mercy, Father. Well, then we have this final judgment. So that's the moment, right? Um, she comes in. She dumps the ointment. Whew, the disciples begin to scold her. Uh, Judas especially, and Jesus speaks. And we see now why Mary loves this one so much. Jesus once again comes to her defense, says, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She has anointed my body before burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, what's Jesus saying here? Is he saying that we shouldn't be serving the poor? No. The Bible from cover to cover has a God who is constantly reaching for the outcasts, for the poor, for the people who are on the fringes. In fact, it's so strong in the Bible that if we don't have that same impulse, we need to ask ourselves, like, am I actually becoming like my dad? Am I trying to become like my father in these, in these ways? No, what he's saying is, don't do all these good things and miss me. Don't do all these good things and miss me. Jesus is what it's about. It's about the worship of the king. We can imagine the fear of Mary when she spoke out, when she did this action, when she came with the ointment and broke it, and the disciples began coming down on her really hard. Why was she able to do this? Why was she able to walk in that room and make this big action? Well, I think it's because she knows that she doesn't need the approval of man because she has the approval of God. And she knows she doesn't need the pity of man. She has the pity of the Lord. He came to die for her. She doesn't need the respect of man. She has the respect of God. She doesn't need the resources 
of the world. She has the resources of Christ. She's not focused on the other things. She's focused on Jesus. And that's the charge for us, too. It is so easy to do all of this and miss Jesus, who's sitting right there. But he's come for us that we could be with him. Well, I mentioned earlier, I mentioned my dad. I, I like the way this ends. You know, Jesus says, whenever the gospel is proclaimed the whole world, what she's done will be told in memory of her, and we're doing it right now. We're fulfilling his word by speaking about this story. Uh, my dad, I, I think all of us have those family stories that, that are told over and over in their kind of character um, shaping, you know? You have that, like, one or two stories that was always told about you. The one that I get all the time is apparently I was a total demon as a kid, um, and you know, like treated my parents very badly as a three-year-old, and I gave my mom like a black eye once, I threw a bowl at her head, all this stuff. I was really bad, and that story gets told a lot about me. I don't know what they're trying to do <laughs> about me. Um, part of it is also to see like, look, he was a demon, and now he's, uh, he's okay, you know? Look, the transformation can happen. Um, but we hear these family stories that kind of define what our families are about and all this. One of the ones that gets told a lot about in my family is my dad... Uh, was, and I hesitate to use this because every vocation can serve Christ, okay? So I'm not putting down any particular vocation. It was a very particular story for my family. My dad came from a family where basically there was a lot of pressure to succeed and make a lot of money. Uh, and his father was basically a workaholic, and uh, my dad had a really promising job in California. Um, I had been born at this point, and his father died. And on his father's deathbed, my dad was there, and my granddad said, to my dad, I hated my job. I hated every minute. And my dad was like, you spent so much time devoted. To I, I don't know you very well because of how much time you put in there, and you hated it. Uh, and when the situation came up and I started saying things, apparently, like, does dad live with us? And all this because of how much he was working. And my mom got sick, and my dad just decided that the, the barber family tradition of making tons of money was going to end with him. And he quit and moved to South Carolina, didn't really know what he was going to do, and found a job teaching Spanish, and he's still there. And that's a family story that has freed me to be here, right? Uh, when I, when I, if I showed any promise in any particular field, because of that story, I knew there wasn't the pressure of, well, now go and make tons of money and make us look awesome. You know, it was do what God is calling you to do. It was a family story that shaped the way that I act. Well, if we're in Christ, this is our sister Mary. And this is the family story that gets told a lot, that Jesus wants told all the time at barbecues and family reunions. He wants us to talk about, you remember when Mary did that? That was amazing. He wants us to tell it again and again because he wants us to be encouraged and to know, like, that's what our family is like. Our family is the family that puts Christ first and goes for him and knows that he's our true security nothing else. So I would say this. Uh, if you're doing this thing, if you're doing Christianity out of a desire to please others or earn acceptance from God, it'll crush you. Zeal will crush you. But if you're living out the fact you're already accepted by Jesus, you already have his love, his pity, his respect, his joy. He looks at you in great delight. Then we can begin to live like Mary. I don't think Mary went into there going, I'm about to do something awesome. I think she was Jesus. This zeal that we show, motivated by Christ, it's possible it'll offend others. It may be hard to explain. 
Tim Keller said, if we're Christians, we should always be kind of on both sides. We should always have things we're doing that the world looks at and goes like, yeah, that's really good. And always things that are like, that sounds awful. And we're confusing to people. We should offend basically everyone and encourage basically everyone. We aren't going to make sense to people. But if we follow after Christ, our lives will make sense to the one who's a, the one opinion that actually matters, the opinion of Jesus. She has anointed him knowing that he is going forth to get our security that we can now live freely, serve him, pursue our God, and act like people with unreasonable faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the story of our sister Mary. I trust that because these things are true, that one day we'll sit around and have a conversation with Mary about this moment. We'll talk about, to her, all these things that we have learned from her and all the ways that you have worked through her. I ask that you would encourage everybody in this room today that they would set their eyes on you, that our zeal would be motivated by nothing else but deep gratitude for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.